Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. Turning your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to look through this entire chapter as we continue this series that we have entitled The God Who Builds, walking through the book of Nehemiah, really looking at this idea and how we've defined the God who builds uh, with this definition, that God is faithful to remember and act upon his promises to build his people and his church for his glory. And hopefully you're beginning to have that definition memorized as we've now mentioned it every single week that we've walked through this series. And now we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. And just to give you a little bit of an idea, if you've missed some weeks, uh, you can also go to our website. You can watch those messages. You can subscribe to our podcast. And that's available for you if, if that's something that, that uh, you want to go to or you've missed some weeks or this may be your first week here. And I want to encourage you to do that. But as we've walked through these chapters so far, we saw in Nehemiah 1 that God gives the call to Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah goes before King Artaxerxes and, and asks King Artaxerxes to grant him permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls. And King Artaxerxes actually funds that campaign to do so, the same king who caused and ordered those walls to stop with Ezra some 13 to 20 years before Nehemiah is on, is on the scene that we find ourselves in the book. And so we go to Nehemiah chapter 3 and, and, and opposition comes and, and Nehemiah rallies the people and they all rally together and we saw that beautiful picture in Nehemiah chapter 3 where every person takes it as their responsibility to be a part of what God wants to do in Jerusalem and through his people. And last week we looked at Nehemiah 4 looking at opposition. That when we commit ourselves to what we believe God wants to build in us and through us, that opposition is going to come. And last week we looked at how we deal with that opposition. And so this week we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're once again going to work through this entire chapter. And I want to start in verse 1 and get right into it this morning. And would you look, at, look, look with me, hopefully you're in Nehemiah 5 by now. If you're there, say, I'm there. Amen. Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And so let me just give you, as we walk through these first nine verses, an idea of what's going on here. There's an economic crisis going on here with the people of Jerusalem, and, and, and there's, a, there's a food shortage going on here, and so especially for large families that have many mouths to feed, there's this economic crisis and this food crisis. And so as the children of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, have given extra labor on the wall, no doubt this had affected how they were harvesting their crops. In fact, most people believe that these walls are finished being built in August, uh, August to September 
of the year giving our calendar to give us kind of a context of where we would be in the year. Well, that's harvest time. And so as all these people have committed themselves to rebuild the walls, what that means is there's less people to harvest the crops so that these people can eat. And if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 4, last chapter, verse 22, Nehemiah asked the workers to stay in Jerusalem and not to return to their villages so that these walls can be built because of the opposition that was going, which means that there was less people to harvest. So little money buys little grain. Pretty simple, right? Look at verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there was individuals that in order to get loans to buy grain, they had to mortgage their fields to do so. So you had that going on. Then look at verse 4. And there were those who said, we have to borrow money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So they're either individuals who were starving because they didn't have grain. So what were they doing? You had these individuals who did have property. They were selling that property. They were, they were getting loans on that property so that they could have money to buy grain. Or there was individuals <coughs> who were struggling because they had tax, and the Persians' taxes were very heavy on the children of Israel and the people of Jerusalem. So they were having to mortgage their fields so they could afford to even pay the taxes that they owed to the Persian government. So that's what's going on in this time. Now look at verse 5. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what people were even doing as well, if they didn't have land to mortgage is that they were selling their own sons and daughters into slavery, which was something that was often done, so that I would sell my son or daughter or myself into slavery for a certain amount of time so that then I could receive what I needed to be able to live. So all this is going on, but here's what we need to understand so that this passage of Scripture makes sense. is all of this is going on, this selling and this charging interest and people starving and needing grain and other people leveraging that opportunity to take advantage of those who have less. All of that is going on, but it's not going on with people that are not Israelites. That what's going on in this passage of Scripture is you have certain individuals who are more well-off that are brothers and sisters Children of Israel, children in Jerusalem that are taking advantage of their own people to gain more money. So this isn't people doing this to the children of Israel here in Jerusalem that are not Israelites. This is going on inside of the camp, so to speak. Now look at Nehemiah's reaction, verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcries in these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers 
that they may be sold to us. Now look at the people's response that were doing this. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Now look at this phrase, this is important. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Here's what we need to understand. Is whenever we misplace our fear of God, and what did we define the fear of God as a few weeks ago? And when you see the fear of God, and we're going to talk more about this, when you see the fear of God in the Old Testament especially, it has this idea of worshipful submission That, God, I'm understanding who you are. And in light of who you are, God, I'm going to submit my life and all that I am to you. So whenever we misplace our fear of God, the result is always going to be outcries in our interpersonal relationships. Like whenever I'm misplacing my fear of God and that worshipful submission... And I am not giving God what he deserves, and that is my worship in all of me. Whenever I'm not doing that, (coughs) then it's going to result in outcries in my interpersonal relationships in some shape or form. And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. Because the quality of my vertical relationship with God affects the quality of my horizontal relationship with others. It's always the case. That whenever I'm counseling someone and they're in my office and and there's something going on in their interpersonal relationships with someone else, you know what always, it always stems back to that the vertical relationship of that person is not what it should be. That their fear of God is off. You can always trace it back to that. And so here's the idea that I want you to get this morning that we're really going to look at as we walk through this passage of Scripture, here it is, that what God expects from His people is this, worshipful submission. That that's what God expects from me. And that's what God expects from you, is worshipful submission. And when I'm fearing God, when I'm, when I'm fearing God, here's the phrase that's going to characterize my choices. Are you ready for this? Here's the phrase that when I'm fearing God is going to characterize my choices. Here it is. All that I have, all that I've been given for all of God's glory. We've said that before. But when I'm fearing God, when I am giving him the worshipful submission that he deserves, because he's God and I'm not, That when I'm operating my life by that reality, that when my vertical relationship is what it's supposed to be, according to God's word and according to what we're going to look at today, then this will be the phrase that characterizes my choices. All that I am, all that I've been given for all of God's glory. Would you say that with me? All that I am, all that I've been given for all of God's glory. I'm a Florida boy, and I've grown up in Florida my entire life. Many of you know that about me. And when here's one one of the things that I figured out pretty pretty early on, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, that when you go to the beach and you go into the Gulf of Mexico and you actually go into the water, how many of you actually go into the water when you're at the beach? You guys do that? Some of you are like, man, I don't go in there because I can't see what is beneath my feet. But when you go, if you go into the 
the water, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes in the Atlantic, depending on what's going on. In the Gulf of Mexico especially, there's a strong undertow. <coughs> and when you go into the Gulf of Mexico, one of the things that, that I found out early on is when you go in and you're sitting there and you're wading in the water or you're messing around with the waves or whatever it is, do you ever find this, that when you're in there for a long time, that all of a sudden when you get out, you're way farther from where you got in. You ever notice that? Is you're in that water and you're looking and you're like, wait a minute, where is everybody? Oh, they're way over there. Why? Because that current is taking you where it wants. And whenever my fear of God is not anchored in the truth of the gospel, what happens is, is I, have, I will always have a tendency to be off on what truly the fear of God really is. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this idea that the, that the God who builds, that what God expects from his people is worshipful submission, is I want to first bring ourselves back that where does our fear of God need to be anchored? It needs to be anchored in the gospel. That I need to remind myself that God is holy. That as Habakkuk 1.13 says, that God can't look at sin. That God is holy, Isaiah 6. Revelation 15, he's holy. And if he's holy and he can't look at sin, then that means that I'm in trouble because God's holy and I'm not. And if God's holy and he can't tolerate sin, then that also means that God also is a righteous judge, which means God has to punish sin. Because if God's holy and perfect, that also means he can't let sin go unpunished. And because he can't let sin go unpunished, then therefore someone has to pay for sin. And that someone is me. But knowing that I can't pay for my sin, that I can never have a relationship with a holy God in and of myself because I'm not perfect, praise God that God loved me enough, even though he was holy, even though he, was, he demanded justice, that God was also loving and God loved me enough that it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so in him, speaking of Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That we have a holy God who can't tolerate sin, who can't look on sin, who can't have a relationship with me because I am sinful. And because God's righteous and he is a judge and he demands payment for sin, then that means someone had to pay for my sin. And praise God that God is also loving and he sent Jesus Christ to live perfection for me, to have the wrath of God poured out on him so that I could have a relationship with God, so that I could experience his love, so that I could experience that relationship, so that I can have a home in heaven and a relationship with him for all of eternity. Like that's where my fear of God, my worshipful submission needs to be anchored. Because I've said this before, that when my worshipful submission is, is, is anchored in circumstances, I'm going to be like when I walk into the Gulf of Mexico and 30 minutes later I'm way over here and I started way over here. Because I'm not anchored in something that's going to keep me from drifting. And some of us this morning need to bring ourselves back to the reality that we had when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is reminding myself, man, the reason why I ought to want to worshipfully submit to God is because of what God has done for me. He's not a killjoy. He's not a God who wants to just 
beat me down. He's a God who loved me enough that even through his holiness and his justice and his love, he provided a way through Jesus Christ. I need to bring myself back to reality. That's where my fear of God needs to be anchored. So what I want to do in this passage is give you three things that I believe that when we are worshipfully submitting to God, that these three phrases are going to characterize our life. Here's the first one. Demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. <clears throat> Demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. That when I'm worshipfully submitting to God, and it's anchored in that reality of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for me, that what I'm going to say in my life is, hey, demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. It's not a way. It's not a option. It's the only way for me. And I say that because in verses 1 through 8, what we just read, we see these nobles and officials, and instead of looking, looking how to lovingly meet the needs of others that are their brothers and sisters, that are the people that are alongside them building this wall, then instead of them looking how to lovingly meet the needs of those around them, what do they do? They fall back into their natural choices that we all naturally make, and that is, let, let me be self-absorbed. Let me just think about me. Let me be self-serving. How does this benefit me? Let me be short-sighted. Let me not think of the consequences of my actions when I do this. I mean, that's how the nobles operated nobody has to teach me reality check you ready for this nobody has to teach me to be self-absorbed i never took a class on that i know it's hard to believe i never took a class on how to be self-absorbed self-serving or short-sighted and if any of you doubt that this is naturally who you are then i want you at the 11 a.m to go to jacob and say hey i want to serve in the ones and twos and just observe and you'll find out real quick that nobody has to teach anybody to be self-serving, self-absorbed, or short-sighted. Nobody has to teach us that. And what Nehemiah understood, and the reason why he was so angry, as it says in this passage of Scripture, is because he understood that the strength of the people had nothing to do with the walls as much as they had to do with the health of the people. Nehemiah understood we can build these walls all day long and make them as strong as we want. But if the people inside of those walls are not operating the way that God desires them to operate, we're in trouble. And it's a good reminder for us this morning that this church, this church, Harvest Bible Chapel, Winston-Salem, is only as strong as the character of the people that call it their home. It's only as strong as the people that make it up. It's not a facility. It's not resources, though all of those things are great things. But it's the character and the health of the people. It's the people saying to themselves, what we know God expects of us is worshipful submission in our lives. What does that mean? All that I am, all that I've been given for all of God's glory. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 says this, 
<clears throat> it's on your screen. It says, do nothing. Say those two words with me. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. See, when I'm saying, when I'm fearing God, when I'm worshipfully submitting to God, and I'm saying, wait a minute, this is what's going to characterize my life. This is what I'm going to say with my life, that demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. That when I'm saying that, that means that I'm going to be making choices that are selfless, not self-absorbed and self-serving. That's what that means. That I'm committed to make choices that are selfless, not self-serving, not short, not self-absorbed. That in every interpersonal relationship that I have, that I am saying, how can I show God's love in this situation? That's what Nehemiah expects of the people. But like I said before, the Unfortunate situation is, is that's not what was going on. Those that had been blessed by God with resources from God were not looking at how can I rally those things so that I can help my brother in need, but rather they were saying, how can I take advantage of this situation for myself? But when I'm saying I'm going to demonstrate God's love to others, and it's the only way for me, my choices are going to be characterized by how can I be selfless in this situation, not self-serving, not self-absorbed. Then I'm also going to be seeking solutions rather than being short-sighted. Like I just want you to stop and I want you to think of every interpersonal relationship that you have right now and ask yourself, are you showing God's love to others in those relationships? There's something that's going on in, in some of those relationships. Are you seeking solutions? And look at, listen to me, and you're not being quick to answer. Because I don't know if you noticed this or not, but did you notice verse 7? Like Nehemiah's angry, but look at what he does in verse 7. He says, I took counsel with myself. Like I took time away. Like I got alone. And I said to myself, how are we going to solve this issue? And I found that when I answer that question too quickly, the question is, how am I showing God's love in these situations that I'm walking through right now in interpersonal relationships? When I answer that too quickly, I'm being short-sighted. And I'm not really seeking the solution that God wants me to seek. And Nehemiah says, wait a minute, I'm going to get alone here because this is a big problem. I'm going to take counsel with myself, and I'm going to say, how do we deal with this the way that God desires us to? The first thing we say when we're worshipfully submitting to God the proper way is we say, man, demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. Here's the second thing, and we find it in the second part of verse 8 all the way through verse 13. We're going to read this here in a second, but here's the second phrase. Obeying God's word without argument is the only way for me. <clears throat> Look at what it says in the end of verse 8. 
Nehemiah rebukes them. And look at their response. You would expect, right, this argument and this, this defensiveness and coming back at Nehemiah. But look at what it says. They were silent and could not find a word to say. You ever been in one of those situations? You ever been in one of those? Where you go, like, man, this person has me dead to rights. I can't even say anything. That's the situation. Look at verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? And you want to circle that phrase. To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, look at their response. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. What did we say the second phrase was? Obeying God's word without argument is the only way for me. They don't argue. <coughs> they don't argue. It says, and I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. So just in case Nehemiah wondered if they were going to like go back on it, he just gives a little bit of a visual. Saying, if you don't do this, this is what God's going to do to you. And all the assembly said, look at their response, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Here's what you need to understand about this passage of scripture. These verses that we just read. Nehemiah did not give them any new revelation here. Nehemiah did not tell them something that they didn't already know that was in the Old Testament law. Because here's what you need to understand in the background of what Nehemiah is referring to here. The charging of interest of loans to those who are already poor was forbidden in the Old Testament. These people knew that. You could not charge the poor interest, especially your own brothers or sisters. You find that in Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, Deuteronomy 24. And here's what else you need to understand. Remember in the verses that we just read, he had people selling themselves into slavery, mortgaging their fields. You had the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 it's spoken of, where every 50th year, everything was returned back. That was mortgaged, if you had to sell yourself into slavery to pay a debt, whatever it was, it was all returned back to the people. And so when Nehemiah is speaking here in these, in these verses, what Nehemiah is doing is he's calling them back to what they already know to be true. The problem is, is they weren't obeying it. And I love what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. Some of you may know who he is, some of you may not. He was a German Lutheran pastor who was associated with the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler in, in, the world, in the time of World War II and was come to be found out by the Nazis and he was executed by hanging in April of 1945. But he wrote this little book called The Cost of Discipleship 
which is one of the best books on discipleship that I think has ever been written. And he said this small quote that is just powerful. Here's a quote. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. Like, how good is that? One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. What does Diedrich mean by that? Is that I can come into this room every, <coughs> every single Sunday and I can listen to message after message after message after message. And I can go to life group every single week and never miss and talk about the message and talk and read God's word together and, and share with my brothers, man, this is what I believe God wants me to do in my life or share with my sisters, this is what I believe God is asking me to do in my life and hold each other accountable and be involved in partnership and I can be involved in every type of ministry service around. But what God desires most is our obedience to what we read, to what I hear, to what those around me who are wanting me to grow in my walk with God, what they are telling me from God's word. And so often we get caught up and we do so much and we absorb so much, but I but am I stopping to say, wait a minute, am I actually taking the discipline to say, as I worshipfully submit to God, God, obedience to your word without argument is the only way for me. It's the only way for me. I mean, this phrase needs to be in our vocabulary, this phrase right here, when God's word speaks, I will listen and obey. That phrase right there. When God's word speaks, I will listen and obey. When God's word speaks, I will listen and obey. But here's what I know. Many of us, we sit in this room and we say, man, I know I need to be in God's word, but it's just hard. I don't know where to start. Like, what does that even look like? And every time we talk about this, I feel guilty, but then I walk out and I don't even know like, what to do when I read God's word. And I thought about that this week. As I thought about this passage of scripture and I saw the children of, and the children of Israel here in Jerusalem and, and these individuals that were wrong in what they were doing, they were not demonstrating God's love to others. But when they're confronted with it and God's word is confronted to them, they respond without argument and they obey. I said to myself, man, as I thought about that, I was like, I wonder if people sit out here this, that will sit out here today and maybe where it starts is just answering this question, how do I even read the Bible and obey God's word? So I just want to give you some things this morning and I encourage you, if, you're, if you haven't already been taking notes, that you, you start right now. So here it is. I'm going to give you four things on how do I read and obey God's word. Here's the first one. You pray. You pray. Here's what I mean by that. That before you ever open up God's word, you pray. And you're saying to yourself, 
This idea, not this phrase, don't get mechanical on me, but, but this idea, God, would you give me the eyes to see what you want me to see and the ears to hear what you want me to hear. God, I'm about to open up your word. God, would you show me what I need today? You start out and you pray. You pray believing that when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. You start out praying. Here's the second thing, is then you also have a pen. Yeah, that's what I said. Thought everything was going to be all spiritual. Like you have, you pray, and then you have a pen. And here's why you have a pen: that when God's word is open, I am reading a passage of scripture. I'm underlying things. I'm circling words that are phrases that are sticking out to me. I'm engaged in it. So I pray. I have a pen. And here's another thing: <coughs> I ask these questions. Three questions. As I'm reading, here's the first one. What is God saying to me? As I'm reading, I'm answering this question. What is God saying to me? So I have a pen. Well, that sticks out to me. Well, that phrase sticks out to me. Oh, that promise that I'm reading in Psalms, that sticks out to me. I'm answering the first question, what is God saying to me? Here's the second question. How does this apply to me today? How does this apply to me today? Okay, I just read this, stuck out to me. How do I apply this today? Like where I am right now, what I'm going through right now, whatever it is in my interpersonal relationships with other people, in my vertical relationship with God, how do I apply this today? Here's the third question. What behavior needs to change? Because what did we say the second phrase was as we look at this passage of Scripture in Nehemiah 5 about someone who is worshipfully submitting to God? Obedience to God's word without argument is the only way for me. i got to ask myself as I'm reading God's word, not just what is God saying and how do I apply it, but then I need to say, what behavior needs to change? What is God asking me to change through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? What is it? Let me write it down. Then here's the fourth thing. I close in prayer. Close in prayer. And as I'm praying, I'm literally, as I'm praying, I'm saying, God, thank you for the way that this is applied to me today. God, would you give me strength from the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me as a child of God to... to to deal with this behavior that your word has confronted me with, letting me know this is wrong, this is sin. God, give me strength to change what needs to change. Here's a third phrase and we're done. It's found in verses 14 through 19. <clears throat> that when I'm worshipfully submitting to God, here's the third thing I'm going to say. Stewarding God's money for God's glory is the only way for me. Stewarding God's money for God's glory is the only way for me. Look at verses 14 through 19, and as we close this chapter out, look at verse 14. Nehemiah says, For moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. So in other words, King Artaxerxes appointed Nehemiah to be governor over Judah. 
from the 20th year to the 32nd year. So for 13 years. He says, or 12 years, I'm sorry. He says, the second year of King Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Now look at this. Neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. So because of Nehemiah's position, he was warranted a certain amount of money and food and compensation for this job. But Nehemiah says, for all of these 12 years that I was gathered, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Verse 15. Interesting, look at this. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Now look at Nehemiah, the reason why Nehemiah doesn't do this. But I did not do so. Why? There's that phrase again, because of the fear of God. Because I had a proper understanding that what God's expectation is of me is worshipful submission. All that I have, all that I've been given for all of God's glory. And because I understood that, that that's my response to God vertically, what did it do? It affected his interpersonal relationships horizontally with others. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take advantage of these people that are my people. I'm not going to approach us and say, wait a minute, this is my right. I'm a governor. But Nehemiah understood that his position was not his. His power was not his. His money was not his. But he was given those things by God to steward for something so much larger than himself. That's why Nehemiah did that. He didn't do it because he was like, well, if I do this, then I'm going to look like a hypocrite because I just came, rolled down thunder on the nobles and officials. That's not why. It was because he understood the fear of God. I got to know this little guy real well for this past week. This is a thermometer. For those of you that don't know, I got to know this real well. And multiple times a day, I would stick it in my mouth, I would press that button, and I would pray that it would say something around 98.6. And for days it did not. And you know what this gadget is used for? It's an indicator. It doesn't make me better. <coughs> but what it, is, what it is used for, it's to show the condition of my body. That's what it does. It tells me whether or not I'm healthy. That's what it does. And I think more than any other thing that exists, how we use money is an indicator of our heart. More than any other thing. And I by no means this morning am going to try to exhaust the topic of money in these last few minutes. But I can't get past that you look at this passage of scripture here in verses 14 through 19 and Nehemiah clearly shows that he has a proper understanding of what he has been given and it's not for him but it's to be used for something so much greater. 
And when I'm viewing my money as God's money to be stewarded for God's glory, here's what happens. It tests my fear of God. How I use money tests my fear of God. It tests it. Because in verses 14 and 15, Nehemiah says, hey, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Well, they had to eat. They had to eat. But Nehemiah says, no, 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 I, I'm not going to oppress the people by me taking that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust God to provide. And when you say, wait a minute, God's money for God's glory is the only way for me, it's going to test your fear of God. Like that's the beautiful thing that when we take up an offering in this place every week and we mention this every week, that it's not just something that we're doing to say, well, we have bills that need to be paid, but it's an actual opportunity that when I come into this place, that is an opportunity to worship. It's an opportunity to worship. Because I could sit out here all day long and raise my hands and sing songs but as soon as I'm actually saying, wait a minute, I actually mean enough what I'm saying and what I'm believing and what I'm reading that I'm actually going to take resources and give them back to God. That is when I'm actually saying, wait a minute, I'm starting to see the condition of my heart. I'm going to test my fear of God. I'm going to test to say, you know what? I'm going to live on 90% and not 100%. It's a test. And Nehemiah embraces that test. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, verses 6 through 8. It's on your screen if, if you can't turn there. And I want, I've made reference to this passage of Scripture before, but I want to make reference to it again because I think we struggle so much with this. And at some point, I'll do a whole series on this, and I'm not going to tell you when because I want you to show up. We'll do a whole series on money. But I love what Paul says here in Nehemiah 6, or 9, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give. Like we love to look at that passage of scripture we're familiar with and we say, well, I don't really have to give. Paul doesn't say that. He says, each one must give. And then he says, as he has decided in his heart, which means I've actually prayed about it, which means I actually submitted to God. That God, it's not my money, it's your money for your glory. And that's the only way for me. Like I'm actually surrendered to realize that all of I have is not mine, it's God's. I've decided this in my heart, and I've not done it reluctantly or under compulsion. So not because Johnny like preached a message on it and made me feel guilty. For God loves a cheerful giver. And look at verse 8. Here's the promise. Here's the God that we serve. Here's the one that we're called to worshipfully submit to. And God is able. How awesome is that? God is able to make, and hopefully you got your pen out, because I want you to see how many times all is used here. You ready for this? 
but you start circling. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Four times all is used there, and then he throws it in every. What's he doing there? Hey, me using God's money for God's glory and saying that's the only way for me, it allows me, it tests my fear of God to say, God, let me look and see how you're able. Nehemiah had that faith. Here's what else it is, and we'll be done. It's a testimony to your fear of God. Like when I'm viewing my money as God's money to be steward for God's glory, man, it's a testimony to my fear of God. Look at verses 16 through 19. Nehemiah says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, they were at my table. Look at this. This is amazing. Like, Nehemiah didn't take any money for this. Yet, look at how God's providing. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us and from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. And yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Look at verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for these people. Now you read over that, and you're like, okay, Nehemiah threw a party. But let's just stop and think about this. Can you imagine slaughtering an ox for a day for a 12-year period of time? Like for 12 years, 365 days, that's 4,380 oxen. So he either had a herd big enough to sustain that, or he had the money to buy that many oxen. And not only that, but he also slaughtered six sheep per day, and in 12 years, that would have been 26,280 sheep. Nehemiah was a beautiful testimony of what it looks like to steward God's money for God's glory and saying that's the only way for me. It's a testimony to his fear of God. And as we close this morning, we looked at three big ideas. I mean, you could really have these messages, each one of them, on that, that, that stand on their own. But we're walking through a passage of Scripture. That as we leave today, that we remind ourselves that, man, what God expects from me is worshipful submission. That, God, help me to fear you. And that fear is not like this, God's going to throw down a lightning bolt at me. That's why I said our fear of God has to be anchored in the gospel. It has to be anchored there so I don't drift, so I don't fear God based on circumstances, which change all the time. But God, I'm going to worshipfully submit to you because I understand the God that you are. God, you are holy and you are righteous and you are the judge, but you are also loving. And I can call you Father because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
that you can call out to God right now in the quietness of your mind and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I place my faith and trust in you. And you can have a relationship with that holy, righteous, loving God. But man, let's be people that make up this church that say, man, demonstrating God's love to others is the only way for me. It's the only way. Obedience to God's word without argument, that's the only way for me. Stewarding God's money for God's glory, that's the only way for me. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that if that's the heart of this church, I can't wait to see what God's going to do in the city, nation, state, and world through this place. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.